Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelley Nelson. And welcome to the Innovation and Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Really excited about our guest today, Gene Kim. Most of you are very familiar with him. Gene is one of the luminaries in the digital enterprise space. Gene is a multiple award-winning CTO, a researcher, and author, and has been studying high-performing technology organizations since 1999. Makes us old, doesn't it? <laughs> sure does. He was the founder and CTO of Tripwire for 13 years. He's written six books, all considered must-reads for anyone looking to become a high-performing technology organization. He's authored The Phoenix Project, The DevOps Handbook, Accelerate, the Visible Ops Handbook series, and most recently, the Wall Street Journal best-selling The Unicorn Project. Since 2014, he's been the founder and organizer of the DevOps Enterprise Summit, an awesome organization, an awesome event. You need to find your way there. Studying the technology transformations of large, complex organizations. He's also a proud alumnus of Purdue University, and currently he resides in Portland, Oregon, with his wife and family. So, Gene, welcome to the show. Hi, Gene. Hello, Shelley. Hello, Patrick. Good, uh, good seeing you both again. Great to have you on. Thank you for joining us. Um, Gene, if you don't mind, can you share with our listeners a little bit of background about yourself and your book, The Unicorn Project? Oh, for sure. My gosh, I, I'm not sure what I can add on top of what uh, Patrick mentioned. But yeah, in 2013, I co-wrote a book called The Phoenix Project, which was uh, uh, really modeled after one of my favorite books uh, that I've read in my professional career, um, which is The Goal by Dr. Eliyahu Goldratt. And so that was written in 1984. And it's a novel about a plant manager who has to fix his uh, cost and due date issues in 90 days. Otherwise, they shut the plant down. And, and so uh, yeah, that's credited for being one of the uh, uh, main drivers that uh, introduced so much of the, the business management community to uh, theory constraints, lean manufacturing, and so forth. And so the Phoenix Project was uh, something we wanted to write for a decade to essentially write uh, the goal, but for the IT context, for the technology value stream that so many of us work in every day. Uh, and so I'm so proud that that book was adopted by the DevOps community um, as a way to be a banner for the movement and try to find kindred spirits and co-conspirators. And uh, the Unicorn Project uh, was something that uh, came out late last year and uh, revisits that parts and limited universe. So it's told not from the perspective of uh, an ops leader, but uh, by a developer, and uh, to see the world through um, a senior engineer's eyes, and uh, maybe just to you know, describe why you know, write the book. I mean, I think there were really three problems that uh, yeah, I think are very important that are still not adequately addressed uh, that I want to explore in the book. One was uh, explore the uh, all these invisible structures that are required to make developers productive. Um, you know. Many of us would say, you know, it's architecture, but I mean, I think architecture is so burdened by, you know, decades of misuse. I mean, I think architecture is actually, poor architecture is what prohibits so many developers from doing the work they need to do. Uh, and th there has to be a better way. Um, uh, there's this other orthogonal problem of, uh, you know, data, right? Uh, the DevOps movement is famously pointed out that it took so much effort to get code to where it needed to go, which is in production, so that customers are getting value. 
um, and it would take weeks, months, or quarters. And there's other problem of data. How do we get data to where it needs to go, which is in the hands of uh, people who manipulate and use data in their daily work. And that could be a third or even 50% of an organization. Uh, so how do you liberate it from systems of records, data warehouses, and make it so it doesn't take weeks, months, or quarters, but instead, you know, uh, ideally on demand. And the last thing was just, uh, you know, how do we, what do we really need from leadership to support these kinds of transformations? Uh, I love the David Hoag's interview that you did, uh, where uh, we ha often have a culture where, you know, people seek permission. We, uh, people are afraid to share bad news. And, and so really, I want to explore kind of what exactly are the things that leaders need to model uh, to create the culture, you know, for that allows innovation uh, and improvement. I I think you know the book's awesome, and that thread that runs through that story, and you touched on it briefly. There is that that uh, heroic acts of rebellion. <laughs> so the the main character, right? I love the fact that she starts out being punished for something she didn't actually do. <laughs> I, like wow, if there's <laughs> Not a more common tale of uh, corporate mismanagement. It's like, yeah, we're going to penalize somebody. Uh, it's your turn, right? <laughs> Not so much uh, this person's responsible or they did something, but like, and that's actually what, you know, sends her in motion, right? Right. Or maybe takes her from uh, motion and being productive to being exiled to where she can't get anything done, right? Despite her best efforts. Uh, I love that you pointed that out. I mean, I think there's... Anytime you write a book, you have certain mental models of like what you're trying to shape. And in my mind, it was really, you know, like uh, the A team kind of growing up. You know that show where like, they were <laughs> they they were accused of a crime they did not commit. Right now, they're correcting acts of injustice. Right, and, uh, right. the powerless, the, the powerless. Right, uh, and uh, you know, there's also uh, you know Hogan's Heroes. Right, you know, they're trying to do this underneath the uh, eyes of the uh, the authorities. Um, uh, and I also loved. Uh, in my mind, it was also uh, the the movie Brazil, <laughs> where the uh, the the main fugitive uh, is a rogue air conditioner repairman um, who is uh, would break into people's apartments and fix their air conditioning because central services wouldn't do it for them. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is now you know the number one person wanted by the state. And so yeah, I think uh, the Unicorn Project is really meant to sort of uh, capture these kind of amazing acts of heroism that we see in the DevOps enterprise community, where you have these brave technology leaders, you know. Uh, who are doing whatever it takes to make sure that their organizations can compete and win in the marketplace, uh, even though the rest of the organization are quite happy often, you know, to do things the way that have been done for decades. <laughs> you know, I don't think there's many times in my life somebody mentions Terry Gilliam movies, right? I've actually never seen Brazil, not to like get hung up on that, but like um, that's like the one few I think I've saw, uh, was it? Oh, uh, Time Bandits, another one of his movies, you know, but, uh, yeah, it is, it's, it's interesting that, that going out and creating change. And I know Shelly, you know, with your background and like a lot of things that are going culturally, the changes that are going on with different organizations about how they've got to encourage that is that, you know, when you're looking at things like that and the people that you know is like, are there, are there things that people are doing to create that environment for people to speak up? Um, great question. I think it's different in every company, but I think it's, um, you know, the old leading by example versus leading by fear. Um, it, it's really about the leadership and how they empower their teams to innovate and how 
failure is encouraged and celebrated, and you're allowed to fail fast uh, and be agile. Uh, but it really takes a strong leader to allow teams to truly be innovative. Yeah, I love all these kind of uh, examples of rituals that uh, people put into place, you know, to encourage that. Uh, there's a famous story about uh, at BMW, they would actually uh, celebrate the killing of a project. And, and so they, they noticed that, uh, you know, when projects don't meet their goals, right, uh, people would uh, prop them up, right? Uh, it's like, all we need is a little more time, right? And soon, you know, uh, weeks become months, become quarters, become years. And, and so they wanted to actually reinforce that, you know, to kill projects early is a great thing, right? And so that, uh, you know, the notion of uh, celebrating the failure and celebrating that they can actually kill things early, uh, you know, I think it's just like a wonderful thing. And I think that's very much modeled in many uh, DevOps organizations, you know, like at Etsy, they would have the three-armed sweater uh, ritual, right? Like what was the biggest mistake? <laughs> you know, people would submit, um, you know, what their biggest mistake was and they would choose the best ones and have them present on stage to everybody. Uh, you know, this notion, and I think it's just, I love these uh, rituals where, uh, we are really modeling kind of the behaviors that we want is, you know, you get, you get applauded and celebrated, you know, when you have bad news to share. It's interesting. It's it, very interesting. Cause I, I do think there's that honesty of like looking and going, uh, I forget the human bias that goes along with it. I, I call it being pot committed. And uh, I know that's a term in gambling where it's like, you're so far in. Oh, right. right. So you're pot committed, which is like a mistake. You know, you've lost the hand. Right. And so um, I don't know. I forget, but there's a there's an actual bias around that. No, right, 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 right. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it actually takes. Uh, so you need these kind of interventions uh, really to sort of uh, make it um, safe to to fold. <laughs> right. I mean, uh, uh, and, and so I, I think that's uh, I think I think that's awesome. I think there's another thing that I wanted to explore in the book, which is this notion of uh, process and um yeah, I, th I think in so many organizations, we create these processes and bureaucracies uh, that are almost too resilient and it makes it too difficult to do the right thing. And you now end up with silo managers who care more about the silo goals than uh, the system as a whole. And, uh, you know, we're talking about sort of like kind of uh, extreme examples. I mean, I think uh, what, what the movie Brazil does and uh, uh, the, what Kafka does so well is really paint where people are just trapped, where uh, their people are just executing a process with no idea, <laughs> like where they fit in the system. They are literally a small cog in an unfathomably large machine, right? And and so, uh, you know, Maxine is a, an engineer of incredible skills, capable of you know doing almost anything, right? Now, some people said it's almost intimidating to read about Maxine and her uh, achievements. But I, I, the reason I did that was just that to show that as incredible as her powers are, right, almost su super heroic in scale, you put her into the Phoenix Project <laughs> and she can't do anything, right? It's like the uh, the movie Cast Away. She's like Tom Hanks where, you know, despite all her experience, despite all her abilities, uh, she can do nothing, <laughs> right? And she's now dependent upon scores of other people to do even the simplest things. And I think um, to me, this was important just to show that, you know, whenever you depend upon technology, you can't have a system where it requires this much effort to do small things, right? You need small teams that are able to independently develop, test, and deploy value to customers, to independently like do what's best for the customer without having to go through you know, uh, three levels of management approvals or to go through th two different steering committees or technical architecture review boards, right? I, I think that's the level of uh, these are some habits we've created over the last several decades. Um, and, and I just want to really 
bring that to the forefront. Uh, I think that would resonate with a lot of developers. And I just love the work that even like Gary Hamill has done about, you know, busting bureaucracies to show that bureaucracies have taken a life on its own, uh, you know, too much to our detriment, but it's happened so silently and invisibly uh, that we didn't even, <laughs> we were like the frog in uh, boiling water it just happened so slowly. We're just so accustomed to it. We don't even see it anymore. <laughs> I, you know, the, uh, I got a couple of questions, but like where you're going, like when, when I hear you talking about the, focusing on customer, right? And having, you know, not just awareness, but control, right? The whole concept of being on an island where you're completely incompetent because you you don't you don't know how to get food. You don't know how to protect yourself. But in that story, he does develop that ability to like, you know, one even builds a social construct that he can interact with, you know? Oh, right. From right. a human Wilson. Group, right? Exactly. <laughs> Wilson. And then, of course, he died. Poor Wilson. But, but I, you know, what I hear is, that, you know, something that the, the main, one of the other main threads in the book is, you know, the five ideals, right? Getting into that customer focus, right? And it, it's, it's an interesting, I think, uh, challenge for organizations of, of a certain size, Right to give people on that, that first ideal of like locality and simplicity, but then also having a bigger picture of understanding what is the value that the clients are going to pull. And, and you, you touched on core and context as well. So there's a lot of pieces right there. Yeah. I would be helpful. Maybe just to go through the five ideals and That'd uh, be great. Uh, yeah. concretize them. Yeah. yeah. So the, the five ideals is what's used in the book to really crystallize some core uh, concepts that I, I care a lot about and I think are very important. Uh, the first ideal, as you mentioned, is locality and simplicity. And this is really, uh, to what degree are teams able to create value independently? Um, and uh, the metric I love is, you know, to get something done, uh, how many people do you need to take out to lunch? Is it the Amazon ideal of the two pizza team, right? Which means that every, you know, uh, team is able to uh, do what the customer needs, right? Um uh, without permission from anyone else, without having to communicate, coordinate, marshal, sequence, deconflict, and so forth. Um, you know, in the not ideal case, uh, you know, you have to feed everyone in the building, right, to do a deployment. Or like to get permission, you have to take 42 people out to lunch, right? And that will take months uh, <laughs> or quarters, right? Um, so uh, uh, that, that's the first idea. The second ideal is uh, what I think the outcomes are, which is focus, flow, and joy. And, you know, I think especially in technology work, and I think, you know, all of us, we come to work for a reason. Um, and it's because in most cases, because it's the work that we enjoy doing. And Dr. Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, uh, he's a cognitive psychologist. Uh, he gave the best TED talk of all time, you know, flow, the state of, uh, uh, you know, the secret to happiness. And he said, he describes flow as a psychological state where we enjoy the work we're doing so much, we lose track of time and maybe even sense of self. That transcendental moment when uh, you know we're truly you know getting enjoyment of the work we do, and it doesn't mean that it's uh, uh, easy or pleasurable. It means that you know we're being kind of stimulated and rewarded, and, and you know, because and challenged in, in the way that we want to be challenged. And you know uh, now spending uh, now having fallen back in love with coding again uh, after almost a fifteen minute, a fifteen year hiatus. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just. Uh, I've learned that the economic cost of breaking flow is huge, right? It's like uh, when you are in that state of flow and you get interrupted or you need to go ask someone for help uh, or you run to a rough edge, uh, you know, you may not regain flow that day, right? Uh, so uh, I think that's Im important. I, I think about that all the time when I get pinged on Slack 
Because like back in the day, you'd put your head down for three, four hours, get into that flow state where it's like the world disappears. Right. And, and so there's like kind of two sides of that, right? Right. Is that you want to, that person might need information who's asking for help, right? So that they can stay in flow, right? Um, uh, or maybe they need to get into production and they really need, uh, you know, some review from fellow engineers. But on the other hand, like uh, that might break other people out of flow. So I think it's it's a very complicated equation, but uh, the economic costs are, are huge for getting it wrong. Uh, the third ideal is uh, a prioritizing improvement of daily work, even over daily work itself. And uh, this was uh, explored in the Phoenix Project. But I, I think it's so important, especially in technology where, you know, we have things like technical debt, where it gets, uh, you know, left unaddressed. Uh, you know, things, everything gets harder. What used to be simple will two years later become almost impossible to do. <laughs> and the, the impact of reliability and agility and achieving the goals, dreams, and aspirations of the organization we serve, again, is is, um, is enormous. Uh, so, you know, how do we integrate improvement of daily work, even over daily work itself? I love the those acronyms, like uh, the way we've always done it, uh, TWADI, the way we've always done it. Uh, versus making tomorrow better than today, right? You know, our goal should be making tomorrow better than today. Uh, fourth is, uh, I think, a prerequisite of that is uh, psychological safety. Um, you mentioned on previous episodes uh, the Toyota and on cord, where every line worker is trained to pull a cord uh, when something goes wrong, and you know, supervisors, managers will flock to it to make sure that uh, the problem can be resolved and won't happen again. And I think it's amazing that uh, you know how important psychological safety is to that. You mentioned that. Uh, American manufacturers who attempted to just blindly adopt the Andon cord, install it, uh, found that no one pulled the Andon cord because every time someone did, they would get yelled at because it would jeopardize the daily production targets, right? So uh, not psychologically safe to pull the cord. Um, <laughs> not smart. Yeah, and, and, and right, there's a rational uh, motive not to pull the cord, right? Even though that jeopardizes the biggest goals in the organization. And then the last is customer focus, uh, the notion of core versus context. Um, and yeah, you know, sorry for going a little long here, but that, you know, just the, the story behind that. I mean, for me, this is like one of the biggest professional aha moments I've had in my career. It was uh, just the notion of uh, that core of context came from Dr. Geoffrey Moore, who wrote the Crossing the Chasm book. He also wrote a phenomenal book called Zones to Win. And you know, his what he points out is that in most organizations that have been very successful context starves core. So core are the core competencies of the organization, uh, what creates lasting, durable business advantage that customers are willing to pay us for. And context is everything else. So it could be, it could be mission critical, like payroll and uh, you know the, uh, the uh, systems that run the, uh, the entire treasury function of the organization, but it's not something that customers are willing to pay extra for, right? And so uh, the, you know, context in general, right? We need to manage down so that it doesn't jeopardize uh, core. And you know, for me, one of the best examples of this was the touring the CompuWare data center. You know, a famously resurgent mainframe vendor. You walk in, right, and the data center is empty, right? Uh, uh, you see two Z mainframes, and you see outlines like in a murder scene where the racks used to be, with a little tombstone in the middle that says, "Here's the business process that used to run here, and the applications, and here's how much we save every year." Uh, by getting rid of it. And by doing this, uh, they were able to reallocate $8 million from context and invest in core. And so that customers absolutely do care about R&D, right? And so the fact that there was this mammoth shift from context to core, I think it was just one of the most breathtaking examples of uh, what the rewards of doing this well are. Yeah, that whole concept, right? Like 
Because I think when we talk to people about innovation, it's like, well, how do we create budget? Right? <laughs> right? Like there's no money for innovation. And it's like, well, it's there, right? Yeah. But you're going to have to have some strong leadership. You're going to have to have a transition plan about like, you know, moving these processes that just even adopting, you know, things like, you know, uh, Google Office, Office 365, right? I don't need to manage those backups. I don't need to like keep that server alive. That's not relevant to me. Or just even moving to the cloud where reallocating those resources to other behaviors, right? Yeah. And, you know, one of the, I thought I've been having these running conversations with that gentleman named Peter Moore. So he's the brother of Dr. Joffrey Moore. And, and uh, you know, he actually observed that zones to win as important as it is, right? right uh, properly uh, making sure that core is funded, that innovation you know, can be funded. And he said that, uh, you know, he's continually surprised uh, along with uh, Dr. Moore that uh, how little the, how organizations have not been successful in adopting this. And, and he points to if, uh, you know, he says one of the main causes is just the lack of strong technology leaders who are able to drive these innovation efforts and manage down context. In other words, uh, and, and I think I got to see this firsthand at CompuWare, right? I got to ask the person who spent decades of his career putting stuff in the data center. How did it feel for um, you know him to hear that we now have to start yanking out? And he said it felt terrible. <laughs> right? It was uh, it went against everything that he believed in uh, because. You know, he was lobbying for, you know, these systems being installed in the first place. And it was amazing to see their CEO really, again, model, you know, um, and reward new behaviors. You know, every time that they were able to eliminate another ton of equipment being removed or eliminate another server rack, they would uh, celebrate it in the town halls, right? And um, uh, so it was amazing that, that you know, he now tweets out um, on Twitter, right? Like every time a new... Um, server rack is uh, retired you now they tweet out a new photo <laughs> and so i think it's just another great example of uh you know leadership that we don't uh in a, in a form that we don't often see in technology that's so interesting gene and you were talking about habits earlier is that one of the toughest things when leaders ask you you know how do we go about change it does it come back to habits is it getting uh new talent in the organization new innovators What's the secret sauce? Yeah, I, I think uh, I off, I asked the same thing to Chris O'Malley, and I think what he is most proud of is that he did it with the same people. You know, there wasn't a a huge restructuring cost as uh, you know basically change out all the managers and uh, ripped out parts of the organization. Uh, he speaks with incredible pride of how they were able to get incredibly different results uh, with the same people. So suddenly it sounds very much like you know books like uh, Turn the Ship Around by David Marquette, or um, uh, you know these other great books, where uh, it really is about not the people, but it's really the uh, culture and the behaviors that we uh, motivate. That's I just uh, I think that's a very hopeful story. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It is a lot about habits. It's about uh, what is rewarded. Um, you know, so another famous kind of finding in the management literature, right, is that you know culture really is you know what our behaviors are rewarded explicitly and uh, implicitly. I think what I see, and I, I'd love to hear your experience, is like, even with the awareness, right, of like, these are the things, not so much the behaviors, but the intentions, right? Like the whole idea of like sending out a tweet with the picture is more of a behavior of like, hey, we're accepting change, we're celebrating change, and like, 
Do you see that more from like, uh, you know, when you go and do research and you're talking to these companies and you're understanding like the differences between the ones who do and the ones who say, right? Is it is it that they really get it? Like that it's not so much about the behaviors. It's really about the culture and the culture creates the behavior. Yeah. I, and, and, but, you know, I, I was able to do a uh, two, it's actually a three hour recorded session with uh, some people I just deeply admire. My mentor, Dr. Stephen Spear, who wrote one of the, the, the most widely read Harvard Business Review, um, which is Decoding the DNA of the Toyota Production System. So that was back in 1999. Uh, it was uh, Dr. Richard Cook, uh, who is part of the safety culture community, as well as Dr. Uh, Sidney Decker, one of the leading authorities in safety culture. And they have, one of the things that they talked about was you know, how difficult it is to replicate the outcomes of these exemplars, right? You know, we can, you know, we can record their behaviors. We can record kind of the rituals they have, but, you know, um, it's, it's really difficult to capture the mindset, right? And I think that's much more difficult to teach. And, you know, there was actually one kind of uh, <laughs> funny moment, uh, many funny moments, uh, but uh, one of them was um, uh, people who have written books, right? What it is, um, uh, and books are famous for, being able to describe what high performers do, but also famously bad at being able to really convert kind of the mindset of our organization. I think that's really a, a tough challenge, right? It's like, how, how do you, uh, in some ways, it's like uh, trying to change someone's morals by uh, morality, by, you know, having them read a book. It's, it's very difficult. And, and so I think uh, uh, in the work that you both do, right, I think it's, <laughs> you probably face this challenge all the time. Like, how, how do you, how do you have someone really have their aha moment and, you know, change uh, their beliefs, uh, their behaviors, <laughs> their actions, and so forth. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that humility component, right? Like, can somebody really self-assess? Like, get that? Like, what is not working? Right? Really, I don't know. Uh, it, what's so great about being lucky and fortunate to be able to build software for the early part of my career, where you really had to learn and you had to grow and you had to figure it out. It wasn't filing this or filing that, but like the humility of like getting your butt kicked pretty regularly, right? Creates fertile ground for later on that it's like, no, I'm okay. I'm going to be wrong. I'm going to be wrong a lot, you know, and I'm good with that. But I, I think some of it is like when, when you're talking to people, you're like, is this person ready? You know, are they aware? Are they, are they actively involved in like figuring out, like I, I think about the Patriots, how do they keep winning? <laughs> you know, because I, I think say by cheating. <laughs> no, I mean, no, we know that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's got to be a certain portion of it. I mean, you keep showing up with cameras in places. There's, there's smoke. There's fire. But 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 uh, Dr. Steven Spear is uh, you know has uh, not only does he live in Boston, but I mean he is actually uh, you know studied them. Uh, you know, even if not as formally as the Toyota production system. Uh, but I mean, he can't uh, help but notice, you know, just the way they practice is different than almost everyone else, right? Now, they, there's a degree of rigor and discipline and uh, concentration and and so forth that is really uh, quite different than the way most other teams play. So I I, I don't this is not my area of uh, uh, research, but I mean, it is. Uh, I think there's a lot of evidence to say that uh, you know the the, uh, the reason why the performance during game time is so different is because their performance during rehearsals is is very very different. It's very interesting because I do think a lot of what, what I know, and again, I don't know that much either, but like, I do think a lot does tie back to some of these ideals, 
right? Like when you see the players get interviewed, they talk about that locality and simplicity. Like I'm, this is my gap, right? I can be as liberal in this, how I'm going to control this gap on the defense as I want to be. Right. But this, this is, this is my, this is my locality, <laughs> you know? And I, I think that's a, you know, that it, I don't know. There seems to be a lot of parallels there of like, and it doesn't surprise me, right? And, and the reason is, and the reason why I'm so excited about uh, the the age we're in right now is that uh, is is very much motivated by the work of Dr. Carlotta Perez. So she's a famous um, economist, social scientist, and you know her claim to fame was the fact that uh, her PhD dissertation, kind of like many others, she pointed out there's a 50 to 70 year economic cycle that tends to happen. But her novel contribution was uh, pointing out that. There's actually a causal reason for why you have, you know, these boom bust cycles, and it usually is always. You know, her her claim is that it's triggered by whenever you have a mode of production uh, whose cost is rapidly diminished, um, and uh, so it's happened in the age of uh, uh, steel, the age of uh, rail and electricity, the age of mass manufacturing. You know, so we're in the fifth age of ages of software and data, and each time it triggered this incredible boom. <laughs> that was then followed by this incredible bust, and that was all fueled by financial capital. So in tr- Detroit 100 years ago, uh, there were 300 car startups. Um, and, and so every time after the bust, uh, there's this period of intense regulation where uh, you know government entities come in and figure out how to regulate this new technology. And then usually it's followed by a 50 to 60-year golden age of prosperity fueled not by financial capital but by production capital. And so the real wealth that was created in the last century was not by the automobile. It was actually the automobile in conjunction with the interstate, sti- interstate highway system and uh, a whole new way to manage supply chains. And that led to you know the greatest economic expansion uh, the world has ever seen. And so, uh, uh, so you know, we are on the cusp of that. Um, you know, I think now is that we are now figuring out how to. Uh, leverage all these new ways of working and new modes of production that was pioneered by Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. But as much value as they've created, trillions of dollars, you know, that's going to be dwarfed, in my belief, right, by what the value is going to get created by what happens when every uh, established brand across every industry vertical uses those same uh, principles and patterns and knows how to exploit that technology. Um, you know, that will create tens of trillions of dollars every year. Um, you know, what you call digital disruption, uh, you know, digital innovation, so forth. I mean, it really is all about, you know, how to create value um, in just the same type of ways uh, that the tech giants have done. Um, and, and so, uh, sorry. For the, why, why are we no, that's because, a super <laughs> intense thought, man. Yeah. Right? Well, like, so, think well, about that. So, I, yeah, as exciting as, as it is, right, uh, I'm excited by this other sort of follow-on point, which is that every one of these five economic cycles led to a new mode of management. You know, to properly exploit this new technology that's now uh, you know usable and can create economic value. So, uh, whether it was subcontracting, factory systems, mass manufacturing, Fordism, Taylorism, right? The big question is like, what replaces Taylorism and Fordism? And you know, I think that really is dynamic learning organizations. And I think that is kind of the frame uh, that really talks about like how do you how do you create psychological safety? How do you make it safe to tell bad news? How do you uh, um, you know, if we if what we need from leaders is not to define the work and then decompose it and then <laughs> farm it out to a bunch of sub managers and hold them accountable and then check for compliance, right? If it's not that, right? You know, yeah, you know, what is it? So I think I think you know these 
principles, practices, new leadership norms, I, I think are what's going to define the next 50 years of, uh, you know, how we create value um, in this new world. So I'm, I'm, and it's no surprise that it will come from technology organizations, right? Because that's where these new modes of production were pioneered. I just, I, I, that's awesome. And uh, yeah, the technology coming from technology, I always think about that. Just talking to my kids about the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey, about like, <laughs> it started with throwing a bone. You know, that was high tech back then, right? So yeah. the weak team could win by inventing a weapon. <laughs> so where do you think, I mean, you, you know, from your perspective, the, the new evolution, right, of like, you, you look at Taylorism and Fordism and, and you know, the post-industrial revolution mentality of like reducing things down and hyper-efficiency was the goal, right? What is the real goal now? Yeah, I, I don't know. In fact, I mean, this is my area of, uh, you know, uh, in fact, this is kind of a quest that I'm on in the DevOps enterprise community. And, you know, the people that uh, we invite to speak, uh, you know, I think are the people that I think we can learn from. Uh, but I think you know, the common themes to me are about, is it really about um, fostering innovation at the edges, fully supported by core? Um, and so uh, that's why I think the core versus context thing is so important, right? Is we can't allow context to starve core. You know, the book Team of Teams by General Stanley McChrystal, right? That is a story about like very powerful silos and uh, functional silo managers making sure that the, you know, the uh, that the greatest goals of the organization, you know, were impeded by the more parochial functional goals. So that was a story about the joint special task force uh, in Iraq that were uh, trying to fight Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And they were being soundly beaten uh, by a far smaller, far more nimble uh, adversary. Less trained. Less equipped, less trained, right? Yeah, right, right. Uh, yeah, they didn't have satellites. Right. They didn't have. You They're know, being outworked uh, by a twenty-dollar burner phone. And no, exactly right. And, and so uh, they knew they were losing, right? In fact, uh, these were the uh, you know the Joint Special uh, Forces Task Force across every military agency, uh, plus the intelligence agencies, with you know tens of billions of dollars of um, you know uh, investment supporting them. Um, and there was this wonderful line in the book um, uh, that General. McChrystal said it was, uh, in some ways, that conspired to help create the problem. He said the team was the boundary of which everyone else sucked, right? So if you were an Army Ranger team or in Delta Force or Navy SEALs, right, your team was great, the very best, and everyone else sucked. <laughs> and the it, intelligence it does agencies, sound like how developers felt about ops, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, absolutely. And you know what? Uh, honestly, Gene, the, the even funnier part is I didn't realize that sales and marketing felt that way about each other. Oh yeah, having never <laughs> right, been part of that, I thought they were. I thought the uh, my my opponent was uh, friends with my other opponent, but no, they they did not like each other either. <laughs> exactly, you give me crappy leads. That's uh, right. Like no, you're just bad at prosecuting them. <laughs> it, it's um, like when I found out that Apple and Google didn't like each other. I'm like, what? That's a thing. Yeah, and I think all of those really speak to this. You know, really, the title of the book is "How Do You Create a Team of Teams That's Working Together to Create a uh, to to, um, solve the biggest objective." In their case, it was to protect the citizenry of uh, you know that you know of the citizenry that they were tasked to protect. Right. It's amazing that uh, you know he tells the story of how they were able to uh, you know recreate the dynamics and the norms so that uh, they could do amazing things like go from sighting of a enemy leader to capture in 45 minutes where the majority of the decisions were made by the people close to the work, often enlisted people making all the needed decisions 
where in the old days, it would have taken months to get all the approvals to even execute. Right. Presidential approval in many cases. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, it's it's a very interesting book. And I, it, one thing I, I, I want to, uh, for anybody who has not read any of Gene's books, first of all, go. Because like all these books that he's citing, right? They are, the, the bibliography in every one of his books is like a list of books you should read. And so like all of his books do a great job of like taking the things that he's researching, the things he's learning and turning into a, a great narrative, a great story so that, you know, some of these books are not easy reads, you know, <laughs> and you're not going to enjoy yourself. It's not a compelling story. I'm reading uh, Kahneman's. Uh, what is it? Think fast. Oh, that's a tough one. Yeah, thinking fast and slow. It's yeah, tough. Yeah. Oh, that is tough. Oh, that's a great book. It's a great book. It's so you know challenges your mind in so many ways. But it's like, okay, this is like a, this is a, like a land war going on here. <laughs> yeah, it took me a long time to sort of have my aha moment on this. But I mean, even things like uh, diversity in teams and so forth. I mean, uh, the Kahneman and Traversky book. You know, talk about like how that's needed to overcome these biases that are so invisible to us. And and so it's actually no surprise that like when you have more diverse teams, they actually end up with better decisions because uh, it, it is a way to uh, overcome these um, and confront these biases. And so it's great for society. Yes. Which is kind of the way I've typically thought about it, but it's actually great for getting better decisions, better outcomes. And so I think that's all part of this, um, you know, new age of, um, leadership uh, will it will be you know I think that cognitive biases will be one of those things that you know in fifty years there's no doubt in my mind that we'll be far better at making decisions and uh, we'll be doing it in a mode that you know may seem actually quite alien to even us in uh, uh, twenty twenty. I agree. I think it's super powerful, and like you will get Taylorism with the whole project management approach and Fordism of like stripping things down. I think you touched on the really most important thing that's changed is the expectation that your teams make decisions hmm. right it's not just execute on this either well-established structure of like we've simplified things down to you put the screw here <laughs> or we've put the plan together completely flawed but you're going to execute on this completely flawed plan and like making decisions is going to be that critical element of every team like to to improvise to adapt change faster than ever all of that. And so that when you said decision, I'm, it kind of hit me like that is, I think, one of the biggest things is that ability to make better decisions is going to be the critical ability for organizations to succeed. Yeah, I think in Steven Spears' uh, work, if you see any of his talks at DevOps Enterprise or his book, High Velocity Edge, one thing that he speaks very clearly about is like, who do you want making decisions when you solve a problem or who do you want solving a problem? In general, the person closest to the work because like, they are the world's best expert in the work being done, right? And so for decision to be made like far removed from that is uh, usually a bad thing because they don't know enough you know, to actually make the right call, right? Or to make a good call. And so I, I just uh, love where that thread goes, which is that, you know, uh, it's not just about innovation at the edges, it's about problem solving at the edges. And as Dr. Steven Spears said, he said, um, like, how many people do you want making decisions in your organization? <laughs> in general, like everybody, right? And when you have everybody making decisions, um, like in team of teams at the end versus five, like team of teams in the beginning, <laughs> not only does it take longer, right? Because, you know, only five people can only make a certain number of decisions in a day. <laughs> um, you know, you are vastly uh, underutilizing, you know, the best experts in your organization. 
Yeah, there's a lot of CPUs sitting in a wait state in that story. <laughs> exactly. Right? Get them all in there. Let's go with the commodity hardware and spread this decision-making out. Gene, I, I love uh, that Steven Spears is, is your mentor. A lot of our listeners um, have several mentors as well. But I'm just curious, what was the biggest influence he had on you throughout your career? Oh, gosh. You know, I think mentors are so important. I love the, um, that phrase, you're only as good as the top five people you hang out with. Um, and it actually came from Napoleon Hill, right? Uh, but yeah, I think it can be generalized to like, uh, you know, I think it's been well studied that in general, you're not only your net worth is the average of the top five people you hang out with, but uh, your level of uh, spirituality, level of physical fitness, your level of like everything, right? It's kind of derives from your peer group. And so, you know, people can be your mentor, even though they don't even think of themselves as uh, uh, your mentor. So um, what is the biggest thing that I've learned from? Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, I took a workshop from him uh, that uh, he taught at MIT back in 2015. <laughs> and uh, I, I like continually through the three days and leaving, I, my feeling was like, oh, my gosh, I, I. I wish I had known this 10 years ago. <laughs> in fact, uh, I was working on a book at the time, the DevOps Handbook, and that was delayed a year and a half just because you know, I was leaving. My, my feeling was like, oh my gosh, I missed so much, right? Um, so one is uh, uh, you know, just his knowledge and his wisdom and his generosity. Um, uh, so yeah, your specific question is like, uh, what did I learn from him? Um, oh my gosh, yeah, so many dimensions. I mean, I, I, I've learned so much from him. And I, I think it kind of reinforces the fact that you, you can be an expert and also be humble. <laughs> right? uh, uh, not to say that, uh, you know, he's soft-spoken. Yeah, he is not. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I think uh, to me, it really kind of, uh, he serves as a model of what, what a, a world-class authority uh, is like. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Gene, I, I, I got to be honest. I think I could keep you on here for about uh, a million years. But, uh, you know, it, all good things must must come to an end at some point. I know you're a super busy guy. We're super excited, honestly. You're great success. Awesome book. Uh, again, uh, the DevOps Enterprise Summit. They've got one in England uh, in the springtime. Uh, it'll be uh, midsummer. Midsummer. And then yeah, yeah. Uh, the other one is in Las Vegas again this year. Yep. yep. And it'll be uh, end of October, as usual. Yes. Awesome. Definitely check it out. Uh, Gene, what a pleasure. Honestly, I really love having you on. It's always great fun when we get to chat. We didn't get to talk too much bad 80 sci-fi this time. In fact, I was just uh, just going to mention that. Uh, so we'll have to save that for next time. We'll save that for next time. But uh, yeah, awesome. Thank you for being on. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, if I don't see you sooner, I, I will see you in October. Very good. Well, hey, uh, uh, Patrick, so great to see you again. Shelly, great seeing you. And keep up all the great work. And thanks for having me on. Thanks, Gene. Thanks, Gene. Yeah, we also wanted to thank you, our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us and listen. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com backslash podcast or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32. 